The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. Today, today is talking about the Damascus Road. When we first, when I first uh, spoke to you, I talked about Paul the Pharisee. And in that, we were trying to get an understanding of the background of Paul, so we can really understand more about the impact of what we're going to be talking about today. And last week, Johnny was talking a little bit about the life of faith that is necessary, or that Paul had, and how for that life of faith, if we're really going to press in and see some of the things that Paul saw, then there's a necessity for us to have a disciplined life and to work through disciplines in our lives, as far as that's concerned. So Johnny was looking at that last week. But here we come to today to the Damascus Road. I want to set the scene a little bit for you so that we understand and so that uh, those of you who haven't heard before can also fit in with what we're saying. First of all, I need to say something about Saul and his name. Saul, that's the name that he was given, but because he was a Roman citizen, his parents would have also named him a Roman name. That was Paulus, or as we would say, Paul. Hence, you've got Saul and Paul. Now, I want to say to you, so you understand, they are the same person. And this morning, at many times, I'm probably going to use the word Saul when I should be saying Paul, or Paul when I should be saying Saul, but I don't want any, anybody to be, uh, have any misunderstanding. We're talking about the same man, Saul and Paul. He was named both, so there's some confusion. But he's, he is, And what actually happened is at the beginning of his life he's called Saul and then later on he becomes Paul, certainly as far as the, the Bible is concerned. So I just want to clear that up first. Secondly, something else I want to clear up. The Messiah. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. Now Messiah means anointed one. So somebody who was anointed, and for the Jews... For the Israelites, their kings were anointed. They anointed their kings. If you remember, King David was anointed. Anointed as a king. And therefore, when they were talking about the anointed one, who the prophets had spoken was to come to rescue Israel, they were expecting a king in the line of David, a son of David, of the tribe of Judah. They were looking for this king, this anointed one. When we move over to the New Testament, we're changing languages. We're changing from Hebrew into Greek. In Greek, the word for Messiah, or I should say the word for anointed one, is Christ. So when we're talking about Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus, the anointed one. And the anointed one in Hebrew meant the Messiah. So we're talking about Jesus, Messiah. Does that help anybody? If I confuse anybody, are we okay? So, you see, when you see Jesus Christ, it means Jesus the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, because if you remember last time I said we're we're at this place, in fact, last time I said we were at the place of the page where we turn from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. Let me find where that is. Here we go. I said last time, the time we were talking about Paul the Pharisee, we were talking about that middle bit where we've got between Old Testament and New Testament. Now, this week, we, we've gone over 
We've gone over because we've gone into the life of Jesus. And Jesus has now been on uh, around Jerusalem, his ministry for three years, and he has been crucified. That's where we're at. But if you like, we haven't got too far into Matthew because Matthew actually hasn't been written yet. But that's where we are. We've gone over the page and that's the sort of position that we're in. Now, because of Jesus and his preaching, there are a number of converts, disciples of Jesus. In fact, they're growing. And these disciples are known as people of the way because they're following the way that Jesus had set. And they're increasing in number. The Old Testament, as I said to you, the, the Old Testament as we have is the Jewish Bible. Basically, that's true. Okay? So you have it, it's divided up slightly differently, but our Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. So Jews of today will be reading the Old Testament. They haven't gone into the New Testament because the Jews of today, many of them still do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so they're still awaiting the anointed one to come. They're waiting for him to come. We as Christians have the Old Testament, the same as the Jews, which we're believing in, but we're also now in the days of when Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, we are believing that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament, and we're believing him as our Saviour and our Lord. And hence we are also taking hold of the New Testament writings that are there. So I want to come, first of all, to our starting place, which is Acts chapter 2, if we had our Bibles, and we're not going to read reading this. Actually, there's going to be quite a lot of scriptures come up on the screen today, or in a few moments, because I want us to go through a story and to be in the story. But here we are, we're in Acts chapter 2, we're actually on a day which the Jews, uh, this is 50 days since uh, Passover, uh, it is the Feast of Weeks, if you're a Jew, we would call it the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, there's lots of Jewish people who are gathered for this Feast of Weeks. There in the temple courts, there's a bit of a, a furore going on because there's a group of Jesus' disciples who are now proclaiming the things of God in languages of all the people around them. And people are hearing the wonders of God being spoken to them, but they're not being said in the language of the Hebrews, but they're being said in their own languages and in their own dialects, and they are amazed. How come these people are speaking in our languages? They're untrained people. What's going on? There's all of this confusion. Are they drunk? What's happening here? All of this confusion is happening in the temple courts when one of the number, Peter, stands up and he starts addressing the crowd. And he says this, men of Israel, listen. Jesus of Nazareth, a man credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to, to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him. And then he goes on to say, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's how it's written in Acts. What he's saying is, he's made this Jesus, both Lord and Messiah. So he's pronouncing it to all the Jews there in Jerusalem. And they're hearing this. Now we know what happened on the day of Pentecost. The people who were there were cut to the heart. 3,000 of them are crying out, how can we be saved? 
And they, they say, well, you need to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized, every one of you. And the power of the Holy Spirit was present there to move those people into the kingdom. It was a great day. The apostles were now declaring salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. You see, there's power in the name of Jesus. As there was then, there still is today. There is power in the name of Jesus because he is God's only son. He is the expected Messiah that was spoken of in the Old Testament and now he has come and triumphed over the cross because he was crucified. He was buried, but he rose again from the dead and appeared again and rose into heaven. So there's an awful lot going on in Jerusalem. All of that's happened and as this is going on and as the days go on, there are more people hearing about the good news of this Messiah and this message is having a deeper and deeper impact, not only in Jerusalem, but obviously as people hear about it and tell it, it's going further and further. That was the day of Pentecost. Let me take you from that day now, three years, two to three years after that. So a short while, two to three years after that, okay? And we're now going to be introduced to another believer. His name is called Stephen. As I say, people in Jerusalem are being called followers of the way. Stephen was a follower of the way of Jesus Christ. The Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, he's around. He's now got through his accreditation. He is now a recognized Pharisee and he is moving amongst the religious leaders of Jerusalem, a respected young man, a man of authority in the word of God. But he, like many of his Jewish counterparts, did not like what was going on. He did not like what these people of the way were proclaiming. As far as they were concerned, things were starting to get out of control. Let me just read to you Acts chapter 6, where it says this, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And then it says, And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So you can imagine a large number of priests, the kingdom of God is extending, People are getting excited about this. Mm, the religious leaders don't like what's going on. It's starting to get to a point of real discomfort. And that's certainly how Saul himself was feeling. So here's this believer, Stephen. And it says there is a... Uh, let's, let's just go to the scripture again, Margaret. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Well, you can imagine if he's performing signs and wonders in God's name, he's having an impact on the people of Jerusalem. And so he is there. Now, we're going to read through a little bit about this man. It says that opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They pronounced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and changed the customs Moses handed down to us. 
The temple, the temple was the place of sacrifice. So the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God had said, my name will dwell there. The temple was a very, very important place. You've got these Christians speaking anything against the temple. The Jews are not just going to be offended. They are, they are going to want to, to protect, if you like, the name of God that is given over to that temple. And not only that, they want to protect the law. They believe as we believe. The law wasn't just something that's quite nice. The law is God's expression of how he wants mankind to live. And that still stands today. We believe that as Christians. The law that God gave is righteous and good and helpful for every people to live right before God. But they were jealous because they were seeing these, these Christians starting to talk about Jesus and it, it concerned them. More than concerned them, they were getting riled up about the situation. So Stephen is there and he is preaching about all sorts of things. Saul, as a Pharisee, is one of those who's very concerned about what's going on, as are other Pharisees and the high priest himself. And Stephen is ultimately brought in because allegations are being made against him. He's brought in before the high priest and they demand that he gives account of what's going on. So Stephen is allowed to speak. There's a whole group of the religious leaders there. Saul himself is there listening. So what have you got to say for yourself, Stephen? And Stephen very carefully starts to talk to them. He talks about Abraham, Joseph, Moses. He talks about the exodus from Egypt, the challenges of the wilderness. He speaks about the tabernacle and about how Joshua brought it into the promised land and about how David had plans for building God's house and how David handed those plans over to his son Solomon and how Solomon had built the magnificent temple that they now had, a dwelling place for God. So you can imagine as Stephen is saying these things, he's appealing very much to exactly where these religious leaders are in their mind frame. He's telling them about their history. He's passionate about it because it's part of his own history, it's part of his own beliefs as it is for ourselves. And he's talking to them about this magnificent temple. And then suddenly he comes to this. Acts chapter 7. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You can imagine this. Stephen having set out the history of Israel and was embracing it, now suddenly he comes into these powerful accusations against them. The high priest and the others are incensed with what is going on. The very things that he is saying to them, you're a stiff-necked people. Don't forget, Paul, or Saul being one of them, was following the letter of the law. 
And now he's being saying, you're stiff-necked. You've got an uncircumcised heart. The sign of being a Jew as a man was that you were circumcised. But now he's saying, it doesn't matter what's happening in the flesh. You need to have a heart that's circumcised. Your ways, your thinking need to be set apart for God. And that's not what we're receiving. You who have received the law... So he's now challenging the Torah of God. You who have received the law, you're not living by it. This is still our problem today. We're living under the understanding that we have the Holy Scriptures. We have so much knowledge and understanding, but are we living according to what this is actually saying? And that's the challenge that Stephen was throwing out. So these guys are getting incensed. Saul, who's listening, is getting incensed by what they hear. And they want to rise up against Stephen. And if things hadn't got bad, they were about to get slightly worse, as we shall now read. Because Stephen suddenly says, look. And Stephen, in the midst of this encounter with all the people looking on him and him giving an account of his life, he suddenly has a vision. And he says, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what he's saying is, I, I can see Jesus. And he's standing. Where is he standing? He's standing at the very right hand of God. He is proclaiming Jesus to be God's son. He is proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. He's proclaiming Jesus. Look, he said, I see the Son of Man, uh, heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, it's not just the story that we're reading about Stephen. As I was preparing this, I've suddenly understood this is us being taken right into what was going on in Jerusalem. The tension that was arising between the Jews, Judaism, and now the followers of the way, and the fact that they were proclaiming that the Messiah has come. There's great tension that's arising. And Stephen is given as an example of exactly when that's suddenly coming into, uh, when it's hitting the ground, as it were. And Saul, this Pharisee, he is such a zealous man. That's it, we've had enough. This guy's blaspheming. And he takes the coats of people as others rush Stephen out of the city and they stone him. Stoning him is where they throw large rocks at him so his head would be crushed. He would die. And as he's being stoned, he's saying, Lord, forgive them. And he dies. It suddenly says that at that day, terrible persecution arose against the church. Because now you can see it's like, right, now we're rising up. We're going to crush this once and for all. We're going to put to death this whole thing of the people of the way. Right, now who else is there? Who else follows this way? Let's go and get hold of them. You can see what's going on. Now this is now causing the believers to run to and fro all different places. So they're now moving around. They're moving out of Jerusalem. Acts 3 verse 1 to 8. Let's just read that. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. You can feel what's going on. Imagine if you were one of those followers of the way. You've had 
If you had been saved on the day of Pentecost, you'd had two, three years of relative peace, and now all hell was breaking out, literally. You were having to turn to God and believe in God for new things. Now, of course, when you can take a step back and look at the big picture, we know, was God rattled by this? Not at all. This was the plan of God to send the word of God to the nations. So he had purpose. God has purpose in dark times. He has purpose in dark times. But when we're in dark times, have we got the ability to stand back and see what he's doing? No, we don't. We don't. But because we read stories like this, one thing we need to do is to let faith arise in our hearts. Listen, I may not know what's going on around me. I may hate what's going on around me. I may be confused about what's going on around me. But there's one in heaven who is not confused. And even though I am confused, I've got to trust in him. Now that's faith. And let me say to you, faith is not cheap and faith does not come easy. Faith comes at a price. Faith that comes at this price. I have to look away from what's going on around me and I have to put my hand in Jesus. And sometimes it feels like we're only just about holding on. But that is faith. And you know what? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But with faith, he loves us. And he does amazing things. But let's not pretend it's easy, folks. It's not easy. We're holding on. Where are we? The day of Pentecost, the believer called Stephen. Let's just look at this point. The zealousness of Paul. The zealousness of Paul. What do I mean by that? I've tried to indicate to you what Paul was going through. Saul. Here we go. Saul, Paul. I told you we were going to get caught up with this. Enough was enough as far as he was concerned. We're going to eradicate the people of the way. Paul, Saul, Paul, both of them, working together in unity, they wanted to, he wanted to maintain honour as far as he could see for the scriptures that the Jews had. I wanted to maintain honour. This word, this law, was given by our God, Yahweh. And I'm going to maintain the honour of the name of Yahweh. That's what Saul was thinking. This temple, this is the place where God said his name is going to dwell. I'm going to maintain the honour of this temple. And the law and the way that we should live, I'm not going to bypass it. It's not as though it doesn't matter. It matters. And so this Pharisee and the other Pharisees were standing true to the revelation that they had and they were zealous to maintain it. Now let's just hear about what Paul described his zealousness, which he describes later on in Acts. Acts 26 says this, I used to believe, because obviously when this is written, he's looking back in his life. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem, authorized by the leading priests. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus, I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. We can understand that, can't we? The mindset of Saul. 
He was just trying to do what he felt was right. But he was zealous, very zealous, in what he sought to do. Okay, with all of that understanding, background, whatever we want to call it, in the back of our minds now, let's, let's go to the Damascus Road. My first point here, a murderous mission. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Let's just read them. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So you can see Paul is now, having been around Jerusalem, having seen the Christians, the followers of the way, run out of Jerusalem. Let's go to the places where they've gone to. Let's stop them. Let's prevent this message that they're bringing going and infecting any others in Israel. So he asked for permission to go, and now he is on the road to Damascus. We have Kentish Way just up here, and we know that that road is called Kentish Way, and well, if you're new to Bromley, you didn't know it's called Kentish Way, but you know that that gets you from Bromley South to Bromley North. It bypasses Bromley High Street. That's called Kentish Way. This is just the road that was going from where Jerusalem to Damascus. It's just the way. It's the main road. Like the M1. You know the M1 goes up the middle of England. You know where that goes. You know the M25? It's the largest car park in the southeast. <laughs> At least nearly every time I go on it, it is. <laughs> That's just the name of a road. And so this is the road to Damascus. And Saul, with his followers, are on that road going to Damascus to execute, almost literally, the followers of the way that they find there. That was his murderous mission. Point two, a blinding light. Now let's read what happened. About noon. So we're on this road, and it's about midday. About noon, your majesty, this is Paul describing it to a king, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people. Now the reason I went into all that background is because I want us to really be with Saul and that group of people as they're on this road. And we've got this mission, and we know exactly why we've got this mission. We are on a mission from God, is how they would describe it. And we're going to destroy 
So as they're going along at noon, and because it's noon, we're assuming that actually it was a, one of those beautiful blue, sunny days, the sun, which would have been around all the time there, not like around here, when we've got cloudy days all the time, the sun would have been out, but here was a light that was brighter than the sun. And it shines down on them, and they're fallen to the ground. And suddenly, there is a voice that is speaking to Saul, and he is encountering Jesus Christ, the very one who he doesn't really believe in. He knows he existed, but he doesn't believe that he's the Messiah. And he's saying, why are you persecuting me? Everything that Paul is thinking, all of the scriptures and the knowledge that he has, is now coming under some sort of head-spinning experience. And he's being told, you're actually going to go and do this work for me. Paul, a Jew, is being told that he is going to be taking the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. If you know anything about the Jews, you know one thing, they don't associate with the Gentiles. Especially ones who have been set apart for the purpose of speaking about the Jewish faith. They really don't want to intermix with... So what am I being told here? What exactly is going on? He is on the ground. He's thinking in his own head. Jesus, as far as he is concerned, is not God. But now he's finding something different. Jesus was not the Messiah. But now he's finding that he is the Messiah. He had gone to persecute people of the way. He'd assumed that they were misguided, foolish people. But now he is seeing, or hearing, or beginning to think, they're right. What they're speaking is right. How on earth do you process all of these things? And I think the more that we understand where Saul was coming from, the more we see the enormity of the impact, the shock that this encounter was for him. Jesus was now appearing to him personally and telling him clearly that he had been persecuting him. All of Saul's best intentions and plans were being abruptly challenged. All of his deeply set beliefs and values are being thoroughly shaken. Now, he who thought he could see everything clearly, guess what? He stands up and he finds that he can see nothing at all. Now, we know that Paul, Saul, was blinded on the road to Damascus, but suddenly you see there is great purpose in that. It's almost like everything around him had to be shut down. You can do nothing. I want you to think about the encounter that you've just had. So this man who is so young and virile and, and fighting and up for everything, he has to be led by the hand. He can see nothing. So what was at the beginning of the day, everything seemed so determined and they knew what was going to happen. Now they come to lunchtime and literally everything has fallen apart. I don't know whether there was much being said from that point on until they got into Damascus. What sort of conversation could you have? Uh, guys, I think we might have got it wrong, or I don't know what's happened, or what's happened to you. Everything is whirling around in Saul's mind. Now, they had somewhere to go to. They went to Justice's house on Straight Street, that's where they were destined to go and to stay. So they took Saul there, and Saul just went into his bedroom and basically shut himself off. 
It says that he didn't eat anything. It's hardly surprising. The enormity of what had happened caused him to say, I can't think about food at the moment. I've got other things to process. And he stays there for not just one day, two days. He is staying there for three days. All of this is going on in his head, thinking. I don't know whether he slept. I don't know whether he prayed. I don't know what he did. He was just going through this time of working things out. So a murderous mission that he was on, a blinding light that came to him, but then a helping hand. Now I want us now to go away from where Paul is to Ananias, this believer. Another believer in this town. Now the believers in Damascus had heard that Saul was coming. You know how word gets around, especially when it might affect your life. And you've heard, as believers, of what he's coming to do. He's coming to arrest us, to capture us, to take us captive. So, there is Ananias, and he has a vision from God. Let's read about his vision. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas... When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias, i.e. you, coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias. And as I'm reading this to prepare it, I'm thinking like, that's exactly what I would have said. It's like, hey, hang on just one moment. Do you know who you're talking about? I've heard about this guy. I know why he's coming. He's coming to kill us. Excuse me for mentioning it, but if he's coming to kill us, why on earth do I need to go there? Why, why on earth? Why is it that when God speaks, our, often our first answer is, hang on one moment, but Lord, but Lord, I don't know. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized. It's almost like, God, I don't know whether you've heard about this, but I need to tell you as well. He is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. Obviously, that's the last bit of the scripture. Yes. So Ananias knew exactly what Saul had come to do. And he was concerned that God was asking him to do something that was really quite ridiculous. There was only one question that needed to come to Ananias. Ananias, what are you going to do about it? Now Ananias, in my view, was a true believer. And faith and action show that he was a true believer. So let's read what he did. So Ananias went and found Saul. Now, get your head, not in the end of the story, get your head in this part of the story. He didn't know what was going to happen. He just had to trust Jesus. When I'm talking about faith, faith doesn't mean you know what's going to happen. Faith comes when you have to stand there and trust that God is going to work on your behalf. That's when faith comes. Faith comes at the difficult times. Faith comes when you don't know the answer. Faith comes that says, I'm going to believe in who you are rather than being panicky about what you're saying. I'm going to trust you. 
And Ananias was acting on faith. And he didn't just have faith, that faith took him into an action that he actually went to Straight Street and he actually went and laid his hands upon Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptised. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. What an encounter. What a faithful man that Ananias was in that he believed God and he put God's word into action despite his own fears and he went and then he saw that wonderful thing happening to Saul, those, his eyes being opened and he being baptised and filled with the Holy Spirit. Faith and action. Now we see this as well in the life of Saul, now Paul, that Paul was a true believer too. Why do I say that? Let's read a little bit about him. Immediately, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, indeed, the son of, he is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among the Jesus followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and to take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. What a turnaround. What a complete transformation. Faith and action. Paul was a true believer because he actually went and started proclaiming about Jesus. True believers proclaim about Jesus Christ. They don't want to be held back. They want to actually stand up and be counted and declare the good news about Jesus. What can we learn from the Damascus Road? Because we know the story, but what can we learn? I've only got two points, and I'm going to be quick on this. First of all, God is able. God is able. He is able to make a way where there seems to be no way. God is able. He is able to make what seems to be impossible, possible. He is able to do it. If we go into the Old Testament and the Scriptures, we know that he did it for Moses at the Red Sea and the children of Israel. They were standing before the waters. It was impossible. There is no way that we can go forward. The Egyptian army is coming up behind us. What are we going to do? In the midst of an impossible situation, God is able to make a way where there seems no way. He is able to do something that we don't understand, that we don't expect necessarily to happen, but he is able to change circumstances. He did it with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They were being thrown into a fiery furnace. They were going to go and face their lives, they were going to surrender their lives to the flames if that's what God wants, but he is able to save us, but we don't know how he's going to save us. He saved them by coming to where they were in the midst of the fire and delivered them from that situation. He is able to make a way where there seems to be no way. And he did it for Saul on the Damascus Road. 
where there seemed to be an impossibility. He was a man whose mindset was set on the destructions of followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ, when the Messiah could not have been Jesus. There was no way that his mindset could be shifted around, yet God came and acted upon him in such a way that he was transformed and started to preach about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, started to refute the understanding that the Jews had in the synagogues and turn things around. God is able to do it, and he has done it in the past, and he is able to do impossible things for us today. Amen. That is the truth. And you know what? We have to take faith from this. Now, we're all facing different sorts of situations on different levels of impossibility. You know, if we were to turn to our neighbour and say, look, this is the situation I'm going through, some of them will probably turn back to you and say, what, you think that's impossible? That's nothing compared to what I'm going through. And we don't have the answers. But one thing we must take hold of is God is able to do what we cannot do. That's what the Word says. Now, how do we take hold of it? By faith. We simply believe, you know what, God? You are able to do what I... I don't know how you're going to do it. If we knew how he could do it, it wouldn't be by faith and it wouldn't take faith. But when it seems impossible, then we just have to simply say, Lord, I'm trusting you. You see, the disciples in Jerusalem were having to trust Jesus. Jesus, the Jews are rising up against us. This Pharisee, Saul, is after us. He wants to murder us. Look what they have done to Stephen. We've got to leave. They've got to leave their homes. They don't know where they're going to. It all seems a mess, and yet God is saying, I've put my spirit within you. Do not love your lives unto death, but go forward in my name to take my gospel, because my gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And he did it. But they didn't necessarily understand, but God is able. What is the impossible in your life? The family members who seem that it's impossible for them to come to faith. Because we've prayed for them, we've believed for them, we've prayed, we've fasted, we've done all sorts of things, but it seems impossible. Let me declare to you again today, what is impossible for man is possible for God. And Saul is our example. The Damascus Road is our example of that. That God can break through in the midst of the midday sun. God can break through and he can bring transformation. God is able. And secondly, the thing that I learned from this is that faith and action is the requirement for the true believer. It's the way for the true believer. We saw how... That man, and we don't know what he was like, just a, a man like us in this church, just a normal person. But God wants to speak to him. God will speak to him. He shows him a vision. But God speaks to us. What is he saying to us? What is it that we're hearing in our hearts that we can't saying, we keep saying about it, but Lord, you don't understand. What is it that keeps being pushed away? But Lord, we would cry. But Ananias got over that but Lord and said, okay, I'm going to Straight Street. I'm going. He had to face the fact that he could lose his own life. On the way there, he didn't know what was going to happen. On the way back, he was rejoicing. My God is able to do far abundantly above all that I can ask or imagine. But you know what? The way back 
is when we celebrate. The way there is when we're acting by faith. That's the faith. That's the obedience. That's the price place. But the price has to be paid that we may get to the place where we can honor him, where we can celebrate his goodness to us. What we learn from this Damascus Road experience, I believe, is that God is able to help us. Whatever our situation, he is faithful, he is just, he is true. But that for us to really be followers of his way, then it's going to take faith on our part and obedience. Not just understanding the word, but hearing the word and obeying the word. Letting those two things come together so that we can be solid in that. So I want us to be encouraged by this. And as our band will lead us now. But as we go into this next week, what are the impossible situations that you're facing? I'm not saying that today, as we go out of here, everything, oh, everything's going to be wonderful. But I am saying this, I'm reminding you of this. Let's keep ourselves focused on the God who is able to help us. He is able to help us. I don't have answers for many of your situations, but he does. And our faith is not here, our faith is in heaven. Our faith is in Jesus. He is the author, he is the finisher. He's the beginning and the end of all things. Our faith is in him, and we need to put our faith in him. So as we stand to sing, there is a sense in our hearts in which our hands need to reach into heaven. Are you walking with Jesus? Because he wants to walk with you. And he wants to help you. I feel it in my own life. The things that, that I wrestle with. I, you get afraid of things. What if I was to say this? How if I'm a, to, to reach out to people? How are we going to see people saved? I'm frightened of that. I'm frightened of doing this. Is God really real? Can he help me? We have to push all of those things to one side. We have to say, Lord, I don't know what's going on around me, but I'm going to put my hand in your hand and I'm going to trust you to take me forward. I'm going to believe that you are able. I'm going to trust you for my own Damascus road, my own encounter with you that will enable me to see that you truly are the Messiah, the one who is able to do all things.